again, there's just this direct link between business success and the employee experience. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to link those two things together, figure out what resources I do or don't have to play with. You know, those are different in every organization at different periods of time. And then see how to make some magic happen with those two things. That's really, in some ways it sounds simple, but it's a, it's a really, really important process. And by the way, you get to like meet some really cool people by doing it as well too. That was Bombus Chief People Officer, Carrie Chandler. In this episode, Carrie and I discussed her career path that led her to a role at Bombus, how she thinks about building people teams and functions, and advice for early career heads of people when it comes to aligning your people strategy with the organizational strategy and how to build strong relationships with your board. And we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. It's time to let go of the past perceptions of HR. Amplify is a new model of agency design from the ground up to support business and people leaders navigate the new world of work. We do that through two platforms. Our HR executive search practice is a new model of agency that moves away from traditional transactional search models with our flat fee pricing structure and advisory on the front and back end to help our clients attract and retain transformational people leaders. Our Amplify Academy is a unique platform to support continuous learning and build readiness, capability, and global networks for today's HR practitioners and leaders through the AI Learning Lab, peer learning cohort programs, community, and a range of resources to support their growth. You can learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, on to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Carrie Chandler. Carrie is the Chief People Officer at Bombas and has a tremendous career across a range of companies you will definitely recognize. So I'm really excited to dig into her career and learn more about that journey. Um, Carrie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'd love to have you open with an introduction for the audience. Thank you, Lars. It's a pleasure. Uh, introduction, just by way of background, as you said, Chief People Officer at Bombus. I've been in this role for, I can actually now say going on a year. It'll be a year in January. Um, I have a career in HR that sort of spans a couple of different industries, if you will. I started off in engineering-oriented organizations. Um, I then um, kind of moved into another chapter of what I call sports and entertainment and now I'm in this phase where I get to uh, have the pleasure of working for uh, an early stage company for the first time and a very mission driven company in Bombas for the first time. So you can go down whatever one of those rabbit holes you want to, but that's sort of the general background. Um, let's see, native of San Diego, California. I think I've moved something like 14 times in my career, all job related. Wow. And um, yeah, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. And then where are you based now? I'm based in New York City, so I live in New York City, and I work in New York City, where it's nice and raining and cold here today. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the East Coast, uh, a little south of you outside of D.C., so I, uh, I, I can appreciate the climate comment. Uh, definitely a far yes. drive from San Diego, so... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So you, uh, you know, you started your career, as you mentioned, in engineering at McDonnell Douglas. You've worked across a range of industries and companies, but I want to go back to the beginning. Like, what was it about HR to begin with that, that drew you to this field? 
Uh, I am one of these people, even though pretty much my entire career has been in human resources, I kind of fell into the function. So my uh, undergraduate major is public administration. I went to a small HBCU called Lincoln University in Jefferson City, Missouri. In fact, I just went to my homecoming this past weekend, which is great fun. Um, and when I graduated, you know, I was always a great student, but I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. So I said, well, since I don't know what to do, I really want to do, let me get a master's in public administration. So I initially started going to um, school at American University in Washington, D.C., where you are. That's one of the little factoids that most people can't find on my uh, bio, because the way the story went is I was going to school full time to get this master's degree, working part time at a lobbying organization. And I just kept saying to myself, this is really what I want to be doing. And I, and I just wasn't sure. I was also very anxious to make some money. Um, <laughs> parents were still helping me out a little bit at that time in terms of living in D.C. And so a very long story, which I won't go into, but I ended up getting an exploratory interview at a company that then was called McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis. It's now the Boeing Company. I go on this exploratory interview. Of course, there's a bunch of HR people facilitating it. And um, and I did this after I finished my first year at American University. So it was the summer between year one and year two. I was actually in St. Louis staying with one of my aunts for um, a little two-week vacation. So I, I get this exploratory interview. It's, you know, I meet all these great people. And they call me back two or three days later while I was still on my little mini vacation and said, will you come back and talk to us again? came back and talked to them again, and they made me an entry-level HR offer in employee relations um, at McDonald Douglas there in St. Louis. And so I literally said yes. Um, by the way, I remember saying to them, I don't know anything about human resources. And they said, that's okay, we'll teach you. And, um, and I'll never forget that, but I literally packed up my stuff in D.C. in a little U-Haul, uh, drove you know, of course, I had to go back to D.C. to do that, drove back to uh, St. Louis, and that's how my career in human resources began. And because the first role was in employee relations, I got the opportunity to be involved in helping solve like workplace conflict between managers and employees or employees and employees. By the way, it was a unionized environment, um, one of the first and, and only that I've worked in, and um, it was supporting a manufacturing environment, which, by the way, I think if people can get that experience, it's really important. Um, but I just remember being sort of amazed that, wow, you can actually come to work every day and really help people make their lives at work a little bit better. So became super interested in the function four months later. By the way, needless to say, I dropped out of the program at American <laughs> University. But what I ended up doing while I was working at McDonnell Douglas is I enrolled um, at Washington University in St. Louis and ended up getting my master's in human resources management while I was working at McDonnell Douglas. So it was really cool to be able to get more theoretical knowledge about human resources and apply it on a practical basis while I was working. So that's how the journey began. Yeah. I mean, what a fascinating combo to be kind of having that first time on the job training while also the education in the same field at the same time uh, in an environment, as you said, with, you know, the, the complexity of union and, and everything that comes into play there. Um, you know, you kind of looking over your career, um, you know, the Walt Disney Company, National Basketball Association, Christie's, Under Armour, you've done a lot of uh, HR leadership roles, a lot of um, you know, very high profile companies. I'm going to 
take Bombus out of the equation in this question because you know it's got to be fair. Can't you can't can't <laughs> come on on Bombus. But Bombus aside, looking back on your career, what role stands out to you? Uh, where did you have the most fun, and why? Nothing about having the most fun because I think that's super important um, in the work that we do. And, you know, sometimes it's not fun, but working in an environment that can be fun is really important to me. Um, I would say two, if I can cheat and give you two. I'll I'll Um, cheat. I'll give you that. (laughs) Uh, One was um, when I worked at the Walt Disney Company, I was there for seven years. Five of those seven years were working as the head of HR at ESPN. Um, a little over one of those years after I left ESPN was I had the opportunity to be the head of HR at Hong Kong Disneyland shortly after it opened. And um, that was a phenomenal experience. I got a chance to be an expat, something I always really wanted to do, particularly after I ended up getting a second master's in uh, international management. And um, it was fun and challenging. It got, it gave me the opportunity to really see how to apply everything that I thought I knew in a completely different environment. And, you know, I think I have the opportunity to learn so much personally as well as culturally. Um, There are meetings I had sometimes where I had to have interpreters and, you know, just, it was fascinating to me. And it's an opportunity that I will always cherish and, and, and still have some longstanding relationships from that expat assignment. The second one I would say was um, just having the opportunity to work at the National Basketball Association. I don't know if you're a basketball fan or not, but um, I had the, um, I'll call it the honor to work for Commissioner David Stern um, during the last seven years of his tenure. Um, and, you know, may he rest in peace. Any basketball fans listening or watching know that he passed away at the beginning, um, actually this is the same year of the pandemic, the beginning of 2020. But um, that was just, again, phenomenal opportunity. I worked with a great executive team and I was really proud of the team that I assembled there too. We had a ton of fun together during um, both you know, good times and challenging times. I worked there during the, um, you know, one of the longest lockouts, player lockouts uh, in the history of the league. And um, again, the learnings were phenomenal, but it was just, you know, a really fun and um, and creative work environment. Yeah. Did you do, were you an NBA fan? Like, did you have a favorite team kind of going into that role? <laughs> I always laugh at that because, um, I lived in, when I was working for Motorola, I lived in Chicago during all six of the Jordan championship years. Oh, and wow. so I was a huge Chicago Bulls fan. But when you work in the NBA league office, you're not supposed to be a fan of any team. Yeah, <laughs> that neutrality, I imagine. You, gotta, you can't yeah, wear that on exactly. your sleeve or anywhere else. Yeah, so I ended up having favorite players, but not necessarily favorite teams. My all-time favorite player is still Allen Iverson by far, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he was incredible. And I I, uh, I grew up uh, a Knicks fan because my father was a Knicks fan, and that's what you do when you grow up. But then I moved Poor to uh, <laughs> L.A. in the late 90s and uh, became a Lakers fan, you know, during the the Shaq and Kobe years. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, you know, haven't had to, you know, relive that glory uh, in, in a while. But, um, yeah, still, still very fond memories from those runs. Um, so you, you know, you, you've walked us through kind of some of the different roles of where you've worked and the, um, you know, kind of the scope and the global complexity in some cases. And, you know, you, you've seen the field evolve pretty dramatically, you know, over your career. And I think it's interesting. You can kind of look at 
the evolution of HR um, almost in periods where I think, you know, up until the last couple of years, a lot of HR's evolution was, was incremental. It was iterative. We used to do things in, with paper. Now we're doing it digitally, but the underlying process hadn't really changed all that much. And, you know, now we go through this kind of humanity, but also world of work shaping pandemic that really was a, a springboard to a lot of the different practices that, you know, maybe we were doing in some part because we had always done things that way. And it was really an opportunity to rethink everything. And we're still going through that, right? We're still kind of experiencing that. But when you kind of look back to the field of HR that you came into and the field of HR today, what stands out to you in terms of being, you know, some of the, the real just significant changes in the way that, uh, you know, HR, the, the HR function and HR leaders kind of think about the field then versus now? You know, I think for me, the biggest change, and, and Lars, you mentioned it in terms of, you know, the last couple of years, but even before then, I started to see this fundamental shift where leaders, business leaders, actually were starting to make the very important connection between business success and the employee experience. And I think that happened as a result of slowly but surely different generations of employees becoming more vocal in terms of, you know, what they needed from their workplace. And when you think about why that happened, for me, I think one of the biggest shifts, in fact, was sort of the digital nature of everything that happened. So, you know, with these, you know, I'm sitting here right now with two of these devices, you know, um, in terms of um, mobile devices. And it's almost, you know, a sense of employees, um, particularly in service economies, and um, are available almost or can be available almost any time. And so the, the nature of what I think we as employees started to demand and return from that is like, look, if there's going to be this intersection and merging of work and the rest of my life, then I'm going to start demanding more for my workplace, you know, and then business leaders, CEOs being able to see when employees, when they're experienced in the workplace and with their colleagues um, is a positive experience, they're going to be more productive and that directly links to business success. I think, you know, companies, they get that. I'm fortunate to, to work for one, you know, in Bombas, but companies that get that, they see human resources now as a really strategic differentiator in terms of how they show up, how they integrate people practices into, you know, their strategies and business plans, et cetera. For me, that's been the biggest shift, you know, and it's a combination of a business leader's recognition of what's going on, but employees demanding more. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. I, I think uh, I agree with you completely. And I think, um, you know, there's this old, uh, you know, term we'd throw around around seat at the table, you know, in HR. And it was, it's interesting to see how thankfully that term has kind of gone away because like, if you're not at a seat at the table at your organization, like find a new organization because the, the, the value and the importance of HR and people operation has never been more uh, widely understood and appreciated in those kind of best in class teams that you mentioned. And so if you're still in that organization where you think uh, it's your role in HR to kind of fight for that seat at the table, then that, that's probably not going to be a long term, uh, you know, destination for you. Uh, you know, but for you, like the 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 role, your role, the role of a of a CPO um, over the past couple of years specifically. I mean, always, but certainly over the last couple of years has been 
really under such, um, you know, a, a acute and sustained uh, and unique pressure uh, because of all of the things happening, you know, everywhere, right? And we don't even need to list them through because there's just been so many monumental um, societal events, geopolitical events, political events um, that have uh, that have impacted the workforce. And I think for uh, contemporaries of yours, CPOs who are in that seat, kind of navigating all of those experiences as an executive team member, kind of leading your executive team through it, as a team leader, leading your people team through it, as the people leader for the organization, leading your organization through it, and as an individual experiencing all of these things. I think it's led to, uh, you know, the levels of burnout that we, we really haven't seen that are unique, I think, to people leaders. And I'm curious for you, and this is a question I love to get, uh, you know, your, your peers' perspectives on, how do you preserve your peace? Like, how, how do you, do you have any, any systems? Do you have any approaches? Do you have any things that you find work particularly well for you um, that uh, allow you to kind of, you know, stave off burnout and ensure that you're able to optimally, you know, support yourself and your family, but also all the different constituencies uh, that you, that you kind of lead and support in your role? First of all, thank you for that question and, and for how you framed it up. Um, you know, I remember I was on a Zoom call with a bunch of executives um, from different functions um, through one of the organizations I'm part of during uh, the pandemic. And I remember at the end, everyone was just kind of talking about how they were doing personally. And I, I, I made the comment, I was one of the few HR people on the call, and I made the comment, I said, for all of you who have um, an HR leader in your organization, and hopefully all of them did, and I said, particularly if they happen to be a person of color, and this was after the, you know, all of the um, the racial, you know, uh, reawakening, I, I like to call it. I said, make sure you check in on them and ask them how they're doing. I said, because, and I really still believe this to this day, it's never been more challenging to be at the, in the top seat in an HR uh, role. And so being able to sort of manage oneself through that is really, really important. And also I think, Part, so part of that is, number one, cutting, cutting yourself some slack. That's what I try to do personally. You know, some of these issues can be highly emotional. They can be highly draining. And I think that there's a level of authenticity that's important in terms of how we show up. Not that we're just the, the chief solver or the chief problem solver, but that guess what? We're an employee, too, and we're experiencing so many of these things with you, you know, as our employees. And I think for me, um, that has not only has it worked, it's really been the only way I know how to do it because I can't sort of remove, you know, who I am as a person from what I do. As a matter of fact, who I am as a person is probably why I do what I do. And um, so I think showing up as one's true self in terms of um, challenging and having the courage to say the things in the room that need to be said while that can be tough, it's also sort of a little bit of a relief for me because it, it makes me feel and acknowledge that I am showing up as my true self. I think there are also practical things that I do that are kind of non-negotiable. So, I mean, most people think I'm nuts because I get up at around somewhere between 4.30 and 5.15 every morning. And I do that because I work out in the mornings. I work out not because, you know, I'm just, you know, uh, exercise freak or something. I work out because I know it'll put me in the right headspace. Taking care of my body and taking care of my mind is really, really important. 
And I also know myself well enough to know that I'm not going to do it at the end of the day. I'm not going to do it. And so if it's not done in the morning, it's not, uh, it's not going to get done. And then just really trying to make space. I, I do make space between my job and many aspects of the rest of my life. You know, I have friends at work, but my closest friends are not the people that I work with. They're, uh, but they're people who understand what I do and, you know, who I can emote with, you know, sort of in a safe space, have fun with. And make sure that I have that proper release with, you know, family and friends. I'm a, just, you know, personally, I'm a single girl, divorced, you know, living here in the city. I've been divorced for a long time. I don't have any kids, but I have 12 nieces and nephews. And um, I spend a lot of time, you know, in that space. One of my nephews is actually there at Howard University in D.C. where you are. And, um, you know, I just, I try to spend the time that I need with family and friends to make sure that I have that as um, not just sort of a safe space, but also, you know, to complement, you know, the colleagues and friends that I have at work and to make sure that I have like a release that's not directly attached to what I do every day. As an HR practitioner navigating the new world of work, your ability to learn, connect with resources and build your global peer community is essential to your success. That's why I launched the Amplify Academy. The Amplify Academy was built from the ground up to help HR practitioners and people leaders efficiently and effectively connect with the diverse learning needs and resources for today and tomorrow. There are three components to the Academy. The Learning Lab is an AI learning platform that includes a range of courses, resources, templates, content, and more to support the learning needs around modern HR practices for today and tomorrow. The Amplify Academy Slack community is designed to help you build your global network equity and peer set with practitioners around the world who share your vision for progressive HR practices. And the Amplify Academy cohorts are four-week immersive peer learning programs designed to help people leaders build the skills and network they need to succeed as an HR leader in today's environment. Cohort students also learn from world-class people leaders from Katie Burke, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, Brian Power, AJ Thomas, and so many more. Want to supercharge your people team? Be sure to check out the Academy for Teams product, which is designed to give you and your people teams access to over 400 resources, the full community, and more across the Amplify Academy. Learn more at amplifytalent.com slash academy. Now, back to the show. You know, it's interesting. I think everybody has their own way of, again, when I frame it as like preserving your peace, because I think it does, it, it captures like whatever, whatever you need and the needs are going to be different and the subjective, obviously, but, but finding ways to prioritize that um, and, and, and really reinforcing and kind of normalizing that even when you're in a very demanding job, like you have, you can still set those boundaries. You can still set those rituals. If it's, you know, mindfulness during the day, if it's gym in the morning, whatever it might be, find those things that you need that, that fill your tank because, um, you know, the role can often be, uh, the nature of the work can often be one that depletes your tank and certainly aspects of it fill it up as well. But having those external, um, you know, rituals, habits, whatever it may be that, that help sustain you, I think is really important. So I appreciate you kind of sharing. One of the really, really quick thing, work-related, and it's a, as you were talking, it made me think about it. 
you know, a lot of the work that we do is about influence and trying to sort of, by the way, we have a, a dog-friendly workplace, so if you hear dogs barking, my apologies. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it, a lot of what we have to do has to do with influence and really sort of convincing, if you will, sort of a, a pathway on different issues. And sometimes those can be difficult and they can be challenging. And, you know, over the years, I've learned to, you know, know when to like carry, you've given them all the information that you could possibly give them. For whatever reason, they're making a different choice. So I have a saying, and I use it with my team a lot, and it's let it play out. So I've, I've been very, very clear on when now it's time to stop and let it play out. And Lars, I hate to say it, but every time I let it play out, it comes back where people are like, yeah, Carrie, probably should have listened to you. Not saying that I'm always right, but sometimes it's like you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. So it is one of my strategies. So Yeah, no, I mean, I think, but you're right. I mean, there's, there's, there's a point in a project or an initiative where you've kind of done all the things that you can do. Um, and so at that point, I think that's good advice to be able to just step back from it and, and see how it plays out. Um, and let's talk about Bombas. You know, you, uh, I know you mentioned you're, uh, you're just shy of your one year anniversary. Uh, what drew you there? I imagine you had a lot of opportunities when, you know, you were deciding that, uh, it was time to do something, uh, something else. So what was it about Bombas that drew you in? Yeah. I mean, by the way, when you talked about the HR field period over the last couple of years, you know, I know part of what you do is search also. It's really tough to find a chief human resources officer, a chief people officer who hasn't changed jobs in the last two to three years. So, you know, opportunities were coming and, you know, I was at, um, I'm always trying to figure out how I can challenge myself to do something different. And when um, Bombas was introduced to me, it was kind of really at the right time for a lot of reasons. Um, so there was one thing that was more sort of industry and practical, and then there was something that was much more personal. So on the industry and practical, I've never worked for an early stage company before, or anything close to an early stage company. So that um, I thought would be a really new, exciting um, experience for me, one where I felt like I can contribute, but where I can also learn. So to have that, but I'd say more importantly, um, just learning, knowing and then learning so much more about the purpose-driven organization that Bombas is was extraordinarily compelling for me. And, you know, for, for listeners who may not be aware, um, you know, we are a company that was founded um, on a mission, uh, and the mission was about um, servicing the homeless community. And, um, you know, our founder, Dave Heath, you know, the story goes, read an article about how socks were the number one requested item in homeless shelters. And he was fascinated by that. He continued to do research about that. And he literally said, uh, you know, hey, what if I and we, his his co-founders, built a company where for every pair of socks that we um, that we sell and that's purchased, we donate a pair and so that's the premise of the company. We're now into, um, in addition to, to socks, uh, you know, we do slippers, T-shirts, and underwear. Um, the part I love, though, and it's actually in one of our ads, is it talks about how do you donate more? Well, you donate more by selling more. Well, how do you sell more? And you make sure you sell more by making sure you have, like, really, really high-quality products. So that's really what the company is about. 
as I as I had more and more conversations during the interview process um, with the executives here at Bombas, I learned that it's not just the business model, it's also kind of what we do on a day-to-day basis internally here at Bombas. It's a culture of volunteerism for individuals who are experiencing homelessness. You know, we do this through 3,500 giving partners, um, but there are opportunities literally every day to do something um, in terms of volunteerism for the homeless community. Some of those things are very, very direct hands-on things with the community. Other things are more, you know, assembling kits and, you know, that will be further distributed. And, um, you know, last week I was making a birthday card for some children, birthday cards for some children in, um, in in a shelter. And, it's just really cool to see the mission really come alive, not just in the business model, but in what we do every day. Um, and there's a, there is literally a daily reminder because, you know, for our headquarters employees, when you come in and out of our front door, right by the front door, there's a kind of a, a little um, stand that has donation socks. So, and donation kits, and in the summer, you know, bottles of water. So, like, as you're going out on your commute, you can grab a few things so that if you, um, you know, encounter someone who's experiencing homelessness during your commute, you can have a conversation with them uh, and potentially um, give them something that they may want or need. So it's it's very moving for me, and um, and it's very very important. And you know, like most people, and hopefully we learned something um, during the pandemic other than about COVID, you know, we learned something about the importance of giving back and the importance of community and, you know, something larger than ourselves. So those are the points that were really, really um, compelling to me and still are. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see how that would be attractive and particularly, you know, kind of uh, comparing and contrasting with your previous roles, right? And, you know, all established roles, but having this kind of mission driven, uh, you know, hands-on kind of social good element of, of their mission and what they do and what, you know, your role as a CPO in that environment supports. Um, I I can see, you know, hearing you describe that, why that would be, you know, so appealing. Um, I love to get your perspective on, on something, you know, you obviously you've been there almost a year, uh, we talked about some of the other companies where you've worked, where you've been uh, a CPO, CHRO, head of people in a range of different industries kind of coming in. And I'd love to get your perspective because a lot of listeners are first time heads of people or people who aspire to be that. And I would love to get your, you know, you've done this a few times over. How do you approach kind of coming into a new organization, understanding the business strategy so that you can develop your people strategy in a way that aligns and enables that? Like, do you have any, and I'm sure it's different in every organization, so I'm not looking for a, you know, like formulaic approach, because that probably doesn't exist. If it does, somebody should sell it for a lot of money. Um, but like, how do you, do you, did you find that like over your career, you start, you do these sorts of things and they help you either, you know, understand the the business and the business strategy in, in a, in a clear, concise way, and then design the people strategy to that. Like, how do you, how do you think about that? What advice might you have for early career, uh, people leaders who are maybe doing that for the first time? Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's, it's, you know, kind of a story as old as time. It's come in and do a lot of listening. Um, but I break that down into two things. It's listening in the executive room and asking the right questions, you know, 
any company I come into, there's so much to learn about the business and how it runs. There's all these new acronyms. There's all this new everything, you know, kind of what are the business triggers? You know, how do you know when you're being successful? What are the signs where you need to, you know, pivot or do different things? So there's there's the listening and learning to listening in that room. But I've also made sure that I've tried to find a way to supplement that with listening at the employee level. Because, um, you know, when I when I was at Under Armour, for example, and I've done some version of this um, at, at, at every place that I've been, you know, I did sort of like a literally a listening tour. I remember thinking, OK, this company is really, really big. I can't go talk to every employee. So how can I get sort of a sampling of employees throughout the company, different functions, different levels, different uh, tenures, um, experience sets, et cetera? And, and, and go in and, and literally, I mean, I formed like little listening sessions for me and just ask them a couple of questions. And you don't need to ask a lot of questions. You only, you know, what I like to do is say, what do you love about working here and what will make you love it even more? And if you ask those two questions, <laughs> the things you start to learn are amazing. So taking sort of that data set with what you're hearing in the executive room and then trying to pair them and make sure you have like a meaningful business strategy. Because again, for me, again, there's just this direct link between business success and the employee experience. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to link those two things together, figure out what resources I do or don't have to play with. You know, those are different in every organization at different periods of time. And then see how to make some magic happen with those two things. That's really, in some ways it sounds simple, but... It's a it's a really, really important process. And by the way, you get to like meet some really cool people by doing it as well, too. Yeah. You know, I I, I, I love that approach. I really love the second question you ask, what would make you love it even more? Because I think, you know, so often we, we think that we have to approach that in a binary way, like, like, what do you love about it? What do you not love about it? Right. Like, what is the opposite of that? And that, you know, I don't know that that will lead to the best answer, but actually having the second question be what would make you love it even more? That's going to illuminate the opportunities in a in a positive and productive way, but I think also in a foundation where employees are going to feel much more comfortable giving you actionable insights because it's not really framed in a negative way. You're not asking them to necessarily like, what do you want to complain about? You're saying, hey, like, what what can we even do? I think that's such a smart way of thinking about it. Um, last question I want to have for you before we get into the, uh, the lightning round, just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. Um, I know that you're, you know, both in your career, you are on several boards, uh, and obviously you're in a CPO role and you have been for, uh, for some time. You have a unique position, obviously, of sitting in both, you know, groups. Um, and, you know, I would love to get your perspective, again, kind of coming back to maybe helping helpful advice for earlier career heads of people. How can they establish a great working relationship with their board? Because I think that, you know, historically that was often through the comp committee, but I think boards are now expanding where you're seeing many more boards bringing on CPOs like yourself uh, as, you know, broader members of the board and, and uh, oversight. So uh, what advice would you have for CPOs who are maybe interfacing with a board for the first time? Um, to really like, what what are they expecting from the HR leader? How can they how can they come in and really uh, you know build great relationships there? 
Sure. And, and I'm glad you said beyond sort of the comp committee, because, you know, a lot of people immediately start talking about the compensation committee and, you know, how you partner with your head total reports, assuming you've got a great one, if not get a great one. Um, uh, but beyond that, I think, first of all, every board, as I know, you know, is very different and board members are very different, too. At least you hope that they're very, very different. So. I think, again, similar to your previous question, it's about getting to know, number one, the backgrounds of those board members and kind of what what makes them tick, if you will, um, different things for different people and um, doing your best to get to know them as people. So during your first board meeting, you know, during break and dinners and those sorts of things, really starting to get to know them. I always think it's interesting to find out, like, do we have a well-rounded board? Is something sort of missing, a skill set, et cetera? And if, if oftentimes, um, you know, it's about trying to figure out who on that board has the same passion and belief in terms of this link between employee experience and business success, and then how you can leverage them and they can leverage you in terms of moving the needle on these issues with respect to conversations. Just like many conversations in the executive room, interesting enough, often enough, conversations can, you know, very, very important business conversations. You can find yourself being sort of lacking that voice about that linkage to the employee experience. So making sure that you understand your board well enough to be able to insert those comments and those, um, you know, those thoughts when and as necessary And like I said, leveraging other board members to help you do so. I think that that's really, really important. I've also thought it was uh, a big part of how we can add value to the board and with the CEO is recognizing if there are any skill set gaps on the board. And when there's opportunities to build the board or if there's changes in the board to be able to um, help fill that gap with the appropriate amount of I'm going to use diversity in a broad sense. First of all, I'm a big believer in you need diversity from a you know gender, ethnicity, uh, global, uh, but you also need that functional uh, diversity because that's going to help push the executives and push the CEO and the management team to think as broadly as possible in terms of customer base, in terms of employee base, et cetera. So it's just, it, to me, it's a very, very intertwined you got to do a lot of listening and you got to get do a lot of trying to get to know the, the, the people as individuals. And sometimes that takes time. Like it's not going to happen in the first two or three board meetings. You know, it happens over a period of time is what I have found. And by the way, being on two boards now has really helped me see things from that perspective. Yeah. And that's been super interesting and a, and a great, great learning. I'm like, you know, especially if someone like the human resources, you know, the, the CHRO, the chief people officers presenting and I'm thinking, hmm, have I done it that way before? <laughs> or, you know, and sometimes it's tips I can learn from them or suggestions I can give them. It's a little bit of both. So. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. I, I, I think that the, the, the trend of bringing CPOs uh, into boards will certainly continue. And I'm glad you also touched on the point around, you know, diversity and representation at the board level, because that's also just hugely important. Um, and when you're looking at how you can really create valuable boards that really add value to the business. Um, Carrie, I've really appreciated learning more about your, your background, your career journey and your work. Um, we wrap up every episode with a lightning round to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. And we always start with music. So I'm, uh, I'm checking out your Spotify playlist or wherever you stream music. Uh, who will I learn are some of your top three artists? 
That's so fun. I love it. Or wherever I stream my music. So, um, in it's probably a couple of different decades. So, in in the current era, probably Jack Harlow, okay. um, and then um, a little more traditional, um, pseudo old school. Definitely Shaka Khan, and I'd say Alicia Keys. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a strong. That's a strong trio. Um, <laughs> we're going to switch over to the screen. What was your latest uh, binge watch on TV? There's so many of them, but probably the one that I have to laugh about was Ted Lasso because I, I actually watched all of Ted Lasso in two and a half days. <laughs> I mean, like all, all the seasons, like the, like yeah, wow, okay, that's uh, that's impressive. You must have been like feeling really upbeat and positive. It was, uh, it was over yeah. the holidays, and I was just like, I just I couldn't get enough of it. So, <laughs> no, it's such a great show, and uh, yeah, I think just you know that coming out at a time right where like everybody was struggling. I think it was just a nice escape from some of the difficult realities that were uh, you know many people were were living through. It was nice to have have that to believe, uh, you know, coaching uh, inspiration. So, um, okay, we're going to change careers. I know you've worked in, in HR your entire career. Um, you can't do that anymore. You've got to do something else. Uh, what, what would you be doing if you weren't working in HR? Yeah. Well, I always say that if I didn't get into HR, the, the one career I kind of always dreamed, boy, I think I would have really loved that, believe it or not, was being an architect. But now... I would say I love being on board. So probably adding a few more boards and just spending a whole lot more time on Martha's Vineyard, which is my happy place. Okay. It doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> um, and uh, Carrie, last question for you. Who is one HR leader who you admire and why? Um, I would, I'm going to cheat again and go with two. Um, <laughs> one is a guy named Dan uh, Marcelli. He's actually retired. He used to be the uh, CHRO at Colgate Palmolive. And I got to know him through some HR organizations I'm part of. And I just kind of admire how he thinks and his approach and his spirit and all that good stuff. And then the second one is my first boss ever back at the Boeing company, a guy named Sam Jenkins, also retired. Um, again, these are, these are folks who, like, I just admire their leadership as well as their functional knowledge. Um, I had so much fun at work in my first HR job. I mean, I was learning so much, but you know, the guy was funny and crazy and all that stuff too. So it just really made work. Um, it made work a pleasure. So taught me a lot. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. And again, having, having, a, a mentor and a boss at that early point in your career who kind of sets you on your journey, right? Like good yes. and bad in the field. I think that's so important. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And I appreciate you sharing your experience, uh, your work and career with all of us in the podcast. So thanks so much for making time for this. So great. It was an honor. Thank you. Love the questions and love the conversation. Thank you, Lars. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.